Luke is a master storyteller. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he tells us one of the most gripping stories ever told. And by inserting people like Barnabas into his story, Luke not only makes the story of the early church more vivid for us, in this way he also helps us get a sense of what following Jesus looks like in real life. The Holy Spirit, who is poured out on Pentecost, grabs onto us and pulls us into the story. And I I hope we recognize that the, the Spirit is such, and the power of the Spirit is such, that He blows away every other form of communication. We think that you know, there are all sorts of philosophies about the power of communication, what is the most effective way to communicate, and so on. But the Holy Spirit still has the monopoly on that. And we see that again this evening, as I hope we do every time we open up the Scriptures. So the Holy Spirit, poured out on Pentecost, grabs onto us, each one of us who are here this evening, whoever reads this story, and, and pulls us in. And that's exactly the idea. That's, that's exactly what's supposed to happen. That's how the mighty spirit of our risen Savior continues accomplishing great things. Remember what we saw last week, that in verse 33, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that is what the New Testament church is called to. We as the people are, of God are called to bear witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In other words, we're called to bear witness to the fact that Jesus lives. Jesus has risen, Jesus lives, and he's working in power through his body, which is us, his body. I say this for a reason, in connection with Acts, in Acts 4. People have sometimes tried to get around the far-reaching implications of Acts by, by calling it merely descriptive. It merely describes what the church was like in those early days. In other words, Acts offers us a great story about the early church. It gives us a nice picture of what the church was like. But, but it is said along this line of thinking that we're not expected to imitate the early church. I believe that such a view is problematic. It's true, of course, that the event of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, cannot be repeated as much as the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ cannot be repeated. That happened at a specific time in the history of the church that's not going to be repeated. But of course, this doesn't mean that the effects of Jesus' resurrection and the effects of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit are somehow stopped. It's also true, as we noted, that Jesus promised the apostles special powers to heal and perform miracles. Special powers that he's not promised to us specifically. At the same time, however, I'm sure you will agree with me that the mighty Spirit of God, who is poured out on the church continues to do mighty things among his people. He is no less powerful. He is no less present. 
He's no less present in us and among us. Our ascended Lord Jesus Christ continues to rule all things from His throne and and by the power of His resurrection, He continues to transform and renew people by faith, bringing them from death to life. He continues to do what He did with those early believers and we are evidence of that. He continues to do what He did through, through people with names. Through people we know, people like Barnabas, who Luke specifically mentions here in Acts 4. What this means then is that Acts is both descriptive and prescriptive. In other words, it doesn't only tell us how Christians were living back then, two millennia ago. It also tells us how Christians ought to live today. How we ought to live today. How we ought to be incarnations, really, of the resurrection testimonies, each of us individually and as a church, testimonies of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and of His life, of His power. To take the analogy of the orchestra from last week a little further, Through texts like this, the Holy Spirit is helping us to tune ourselves to Him. Before a a performance, the concertmaster, the leader of the first violin section will stand to tune the orchestra. She will play an A, and everyone has to make sure that their instrument is tuned to hers. Only then will they be in tune with one another and be able to play Harmonious music and beautiful music. Likewise, we need to make sure that we are tuned to the Holy Spirit, that we're in step with the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians. This is the sort of thing that John 2 wants to teach us in what we just read from 1 John 1. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in In the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We're out of tune. The sound is awful. No one wants to listen. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Then we make beautiful music as the people of God. I remember once taking a youth group to a corn maze and asking the operator how, how we could make sure that no one would get lost. He told me that the best way was to have everyone go in groups and insist that all the members of each group stay with the group leader. And it worked. Likewise, the only way for us to not get lost in the darkness, is to walk with Jesus. And when we're walking with Jesus in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another, we'll be in tune with one another as we're all in tune with Jesus in the light. We saw last week how the Spirit-filled community learned a refreshingly new way of handling possessions. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit we saw brings about a oneness and heart 
and soul among the early believers. And this oneness in heart and soul isn't just a, a matter of, of agreeing with each other. It's not just an intellectual thing. It's not just having the same doctrinal standards and such. It includes all that, of course. But it also means looking out for each other. And looking after each other. Being a loving, caring community. Truly a community. Where we know and care for each other's needs and share each other's burdens. We're told here in our text how this works out for these early Christians. They share. Verse 32, No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And as a result, there were no needy persons among them. As we saw, they put into practice what God had decreed already in in the Old Testament law. God had said in his law, there will be no poor among you. And that wasn't, that wasn't just a, a command. It wasn't just an expectation. It was a decree. It was God's decree. There will be no poor among you. I will not have it. It will not be that way among my people. No one will be in need. And this is what Jesus' ministry was all about, drawing together the covenant community of God where all are satisfied, where no one is left poor and needy. Remember, this is how the apostles saw themselves, how they taught the early believers to see themselves. They saw themselves as the new covenant community in line with the old covenant community of the old dispensation in whom God's covenantal promises were coming to fruition in Jesus. And Luke gives us the example of Barnabas. Barnabas is a living example of of how a spirit-filled community functions in a radical and unheard of way. And by inserting people like Barnabas into his story, Luke not only makes the story of the early church more vivid for us, but he also helps us to get a sense of what following Jesus looks like in real life. This is not an abstract lesson that Luke wants to give. He wants to show it in how the resurrection of Jesus is alive and active in this man's life. This is what it looks like when a person believes in Jesus. This is what it looks like when when the Spirit fills a man or a woman. While we know him better as Barnabas, Luke introduces him as Joseph, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. Barnabas apparently is the nickname that the apostles later gave him. As a Levite, of course, he's a member of the tribe, which, what does this tribe do? What's the special task of the Levites? Remember, it's to take care of the temple. Take care of the temple, which 
we are, which the church is, as Paul later describes. Remember what we saw last week? These early Christians, by doing what what God wants them to do, by putting into practice God's Old Testament ordinances, are upstaging the old temple establishment of the Pharisees and the the Sadducees and and the lawyers who think that they, they are the experts in the law, the Old Testament experts. Well, the apostles are showing that, no, actually they are the new covenant community. The followers of Jesus. They are the new temple that, that God is raising up. The temple with Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And this Levite understands that and he understands his role as a keeper of the temple. As one who wants the welfare of the temple. As a Levite, he's now concerned about taking care of the new temple that God is building, the church. This doesn't mean that, that Barnabas has cut off all contact with the old temple. He still visits there with the other apostles and believers who gather there from time to time. You know how they did that. Jesus did that too. And they continue to do that even after Jesus' ascension into heaven. In fact, he's still in contact with the priests at the temple as a Levite. We're told in Acts 6, in fact, that a large group of priests convert to faith in Jesus and become obedient to the faith. Well, Joseph the Levite, no doubt, plays some role, probably a significant role, in this mass conversion of priests. Now Luke tells us what Barnabas' name means. It means son of encouragement. And Barnabas shows that this name suits him also when it comes to how he handles his possessions. He uses his possessions to bless and encourage others. He could, of course, keep his land as a lucrative investment. But instead... He sells it so that he can help his needy brothers and sisters. He sells a field that belongs to him, we're told, and brings the money and lays it at the apostles' feet. (laughs) Think about that. He sells a field, takes the money and puts the money at the apostles' feet. And he does this so that the apostles can then distribute it to to those in need. Now why is it the habit of people, including Barnabas, to bring their money and lay it at the apostles' feet? Maybe it seems a little bit strange. That's a lot of money? And you're going to drop it at the apostles' feet? Well, this is a symbolic act by which the giver indicates their their submission to authority. By putting the money from the sale of his land at at the feet of the apostles, Barnabas is acknowledging the apostles' authority. He knows that the apostles are going to use that money well. 
And even more importantly, he's acknowledging their authority to decide who should receive the money. He's acknowledging the authority of the, the, the apostles to decide who really is needy and the amount of money they should receive. He claims no right to that money anymore, and he's also not going to say how it has to be distributed, who has to get how much. He realizes it's not his own. It's Jesus. It belongs to God. It always has. Even more importantly, however, Barnabas is acknowledging the authority of Jesus through the apostles. Someone asked me as we were entering church tonight if I was going to preach Jesus. I said, yes, that's my duty. If I fail in that duty, I fail you. That's what this is about. Barnabas is acknowledging the authority of Jesus through the apostles by placing the money at Jesus at the feet of Jesus' apostles. Barnabas is really placing his money at Jesus' feet. See, that's why Barnabas doesn't mind throwing it at their feet. It's as if his money, his money, is landing at Jesus' feet where he knows it will be safe. And he's acknowledging Jesus' authority. He's acknowledging Jesus as Lord of everything, also the land he's just sold and the money from that land. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, including the land that I just sold. It all belongs to Jesus. Remember how Paul describes Jesus' authority at the end of Ephesians 1, there Paul says that God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. All things. That doesn't mean that Jesus is just the Lord of all nations. And that he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's also the owner. He has authority over everything. including the loony in your pocket. It all belongs to him. Jesus is the one whom God has placed far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Wow. But now let's bring that down to earth. Is that how you see that loony in your pocket? Is that how you see your possessions? Is that how you see your, your home, your car or cars, your business, your investments, your savings, your losses? Have you and I placed all that we have at the feet of Jesus? All of it. I want you to think about that. Not just now, but throughout the coming week. And make a habit of thinking about it. 
whenever you give your money to the church and, and to the deacons, do you do so in this spirit? Do you give these gifts, these offerings, as an offering to Jesus? And do you recognize that the deacons that you have called and appointed and elected have been given authority not merely by you, but by the Lord Jesus to distribute your offerings to the poor as they have need? The task of distributing money to the needy obviously became too heavy for the apostles. And that's why they, they later appointed this task to the deacons, as we're told in Acts 6. The work of the deacons remains an important task in the church. Sometimes I think we, we kind of, you know, we, we, we relegate the, the work of the deacons as a little bit lower than the pastor, a little bit lower than the elders. But I think the Bible doesn't talk that way. The deacons have a very important task. It's a task that is bequeathed to them by the apostles themselves and and by Jesus himself. Let me address you deacons personally. You've been given the joyful and important task of distributing the gifts given in Jesus' name. The money that lands at your feet, so to speak, is landing at the feet of Jesus. You have the task, deacons, of making sure, first of all, that the members of the church are faithfully placing their possessions and their money at Jesus' feet. Deacons, you have the authority to ask the people in this congregation or whom God has placed you as deacons, how are you using your money? It's not just you that are accountable to them about how you distribute the mo- their money. Well, it's not their money. It's God's money. So you can also hold them to account. You, your brothers and sisters, how are you using your money? Have you placed your money, all your possessions, at the feet of Jesus? And tell us how that is working for you. And then you also have the, the responsibility of, of distributing the offerings that the, that the congregation brings and making sure that the needs of all God's people are met. That's a beautiful task. Let me briefly mention a few other lessons that the Holy Spirit teaches us in this text. In the first place, Barnabas serves as kind of a foil to Judas. We're told in chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, that after Judas betrayed Jesus, what did he do with the money? The blood money. He took it and he bought land. Hmm. But Barnabas places all his money at Jesus' feet and is forever remembered for his generosity. Judas steals from Jesus and is forever remembered for his greed. How will you and I be remembered 
for how we have used our possessions. The second thing we should notice, when we give to the poor, we are lending to God. It says in Proverbs 19, verse 17, He who is kind to the poor lends to who? The Lord. And he will reward him for what he has done. Wow. Isn't that neat? You can actually lend your money to the Lord. When you're kind to the poor, you are doing exactly that. Remember what Jesus says will happen when he comes in glory. Matthew 25, verse 31 to 46. I'm not going to read that whole section, but I will read part of it. Matthew 25, probably one of the most dramatic things that Matthew says. Matthew 25, well, it's what Jesus says. When the Son of Man, Jesus says, comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from, sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Just let that sink in. What we do for one of the least of these, our brothers and sisters, we do for Jesus himself. What an opportunity we have. Number three, the more we're exercising fellowship, koinonia, as Luke describes it in Acts, the more we'll be acquainted with one another's needs. These early believers knew when fellow believers were needy because they spent a lot of time together. The more active and intimate the fellowship and koinonia is in the church, the more we will know one another's need. That's why fellowship, in-person fellowship like we're having here this evening, like we have every Sunday, that's why it's so essential. When we're together, when we get together, and the more we get together, the more we know about each other. We'll be able to better address one another's needs. 
when brothers and sisters are living in fellowship with one another, then it will be impossible for obvious need to go unnoticed. The fourth thing, the more we see ourselves aware, or the the more we ourselves are aware of God's abundant grace and generosity towards us, the more generous and full of grace we will be to those around us. Notice what it says at the end of verse 33. There are details we shouldn't miss. It says, verse 33, and great grace was upon them all. The meaning of this phrase is twofold. In the first place, it means that God had poured out much grace upon them. So great grace was upon them because God had poured it out upon them. The the Spirit had been poured out to them. The risen Lord was present and living among them. So great grace was upon them all. He had answered their prayers. and, And they spoke the word of God boldly. They were deeply conscious of God's grace to them in Jesus. But it means something else. It means in the second place that from the abundant supply of God's grace to them, they showed grace and generosity to one another. Great grace was upon them all in the sense that they they were generous. It was evident that God's grace was great among them. They had received so much. They had so much to give. So much to share. See, the more deeply we sense the grace of God toward us, the more generously we will share with those in need, even the most undeserving in the eyes of the world. We'll let go of a $100 bill or maybe a $20,000 investment without even thinking about it anymore afterwards. Happy that we could give out of the abundance that God has given to us. What a gripping story we have here about the power of the Holy Spirit to change people into people who handle possessions in a refreshingly new way. What a gripping story of the power of the resurrection of Jesus. He lives, he reigns. He's alive among us. And the Holy Spirit is also tugging you and me into the story. If you don't feel like you're in the story, come on in. Get into this story. It is a story of the church. It is a story of the church of the living God. It's your story. My story. The story of the church. He made a living example of Barnabas and he also wants to make a living example of you and me. And he also wants to show through you and me the largeness, the infinite largeness, the grace of Jesus, the infinite power of his spirit to make us into a generous people. To build us into that glorious temple of the living God. Temple of our risen Lord Jesus Christ, whose body we are. Where no one is in need, where all are satisfied, where there's life. 
and abundance and joy forever and ever. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus, your Son. We thank you not only for his death, but also for his resurrection and for the Spirit he has poured out upon us, making us into a living temple of you. May we be that temple for one another and in this world, not for our own glory, but for your glory. We thank you for all your blessings and gifts to us. It is all yours. We want all, everything we have, everything we possess, we want it to land at your feet. We commit it all to you. And we ask that you would give us wisdom to be good stewards of every every iota of it. We lift up our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen.